This is the Stoppage Time Podcast from WEGL 91.1, giving you the latest on all the big talking points from the Premier League and the Champions League. Hello and welcome to another episode of Stoppage Time. My name is Chris Basinger and joining me on the panel today is my co-host through the power of phone lines, David Ordway. David, how are you doing this week? Doing outstanding. How are you, Chris? Uh, a bit better now that the Astros have won. Uh also joining me on the panel through the power of being in the studio is Andy Healing. Andy, how was your weekend? I'm doing fantastic. Uh, took some tough losses in sports and one draw, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, but doing great. Excellent. And Harrison Schooler, Harrison, I know that your weekend wasn't good, but how are you doing now? Uh, you know, I, I'm doing well. You know, just keeping on, keeping on. Yes. And uh, folks, I think you all know where we're going to start this week in a surprise move. Gunnar Soros has been cut by Arsenal as part of their COVID-19 cost-cutting measures. Uh, he's been the mascot since 1993 and has won three Premier League titles with the club and eight FA Cups. In this surprising turn of events, uh, uh, he he has been sacked. Uh, Ordway, what is your response to this news? Uh, I mean... It's interesting that they. I, I, I'm going to say this, and I don't. I, I don't. You know, they they sacked their Gunasaurus, who you know could be their lucky charm. I mean, they could get relegated now, and and then they go spend fifty million on Thomas Partey. So I, I don't really know where what, what's going on there. Yeah, definitely, uh, Andy. Gunasaurus has been reached out to by a number of clubs, including Bayern Munich and Sevilla. Uh, do you think there's any chance that he? He moves across the English Channel to, to find a new home? I don't think so. Gunnar Soros is a staple, just like the Philly fanatic in Philadelphia. Uh, I think you know he's one of those mascots that's here to stay. He's actually the only member left of Arsenal's Invincibles team. I think he can bring them luck. And I even saw that there's a GoFundMe uh, project already on the internet for you to donate money to save Gunnar Soros. Yeah, last time I checked, they had at least $5,000 worth of donations so far. Um, Harrison, so far, Arteta's win percentage at Arsenal is 50%. But Gunnasaurus is 54.54%. Do you think Arsenal is going to lose um, their their motivation without him? You know, I think it's a real loss for the league as a whole. Uh it's a loss for the club, real cornerstone to what they've got going on there, and uh, I think they'll recover, but they'll need some time. It's going to be tough, but we're all praying for Gunnar Soros in his time of need. But moving on to the real news, uh, a horrific game, embarrassing uh, is the only word that I can think of to describe it, was played at Villa Park this weekend as Liverpool fell hard to Aston Villa losing 7-2. to um, Liverpool seemed off from the start. Don't you agree, Harrison? Yeah, I think that things just looked really off-kilter from the back from the very beginning. They looked fragile. They were extremely vulnerable in that space between Trent and Joe Gomez. That is something that if that continues to be a pattern, I think Klopp will be desperate to find Matip back into this team because the amount of space that Joe Gomez was allowing the likes of Jack Grealish and where all the positions Ollie Watkins was able to take up. I mean, it was just, it was hectic from the start at that back line. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought up Matt because 
Uh, he's one of the many Liverpool players who are out for this game, including uh, essential players such as Allison, uh, Sadio Mane, Jordan Henderson uh, is still out but has been called out for England. Um, Thiago is also out along with Mane. Uh, so, uh, Andy, from a Liverpool point of view, uh, what does this loss come down to? Is it poor form or just Aston Villa wanting it more? I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, obviously, there were defensive mistakes. The first goal, Adrian basically gave it to uh, Jack Grealish and he passed it into Ollie Watkins for an easy goal. But then Ollie Watkins scored a great second, so he definitely has sh- uh, shown his quality as a uh, striker. But I do think, though, uh, Liverpool were a little unfortunate at times. You had those deflected goals off of players into the net in the back of the net and Liverpool I mean even with those out those deflected goals they probably would have lost about 4-2 but it ended up being 7-2 uh which to many was a huge surprise I mean I don't think I've ever seen a team like Liverpool give up that many goals in quite a while uh well I mean it's contrary saying uh what happened in the Tottenham game but Still, you know, a, t- a team like Liverpool with the class and the quality that they have in the front and in the back, I just, you know, it was shocking. But I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, I know Liverpool has a good defense, but at times they were, during the season, these first couple of games, they were not showing uh, the same quality that they had last season when they were defending great. Virgil van Dijk was just a stud, but now they're showing a few flaws, but I think they'll correct it once they get more players back. Yeah, definitely. And David, uh, Tottenham uh, has some experience with with some uh, 7-2 losses, so what should Liverpool do to bounce back from this game? Should they uh, take uh, some of the lessons that were learned by that Tottenham team in order to do so? Uh, I mean, the lessons that were learned by that Tottenham team can't be – done by Liverpool. Tottenham after the 7-2 loss to Bayern Munich um, has since then in the past week won 7-2 and won 6-1. Um, and I think the main contributors to that were we had a total lottery shuffle and our Pochettino got fired and Mourinho was brought in and the whole mentality of the squad has changed. Uh, when it comes to Liverpool, what a shocking result. I understand that there were three or four deflected goals, but they were still goals. Um, a deflected goal is the same thing, and I, I, I don't really know what to say. I, I mean, I, I'd like them. I still favorite them to win the title. Uh, so do the guys on NBCSN. They did their top four picks and their champion picks and their relegation picks. They just similar to what we did earlier this year after the transfer window ended, and they and both Tim Howard and Robbie Earl both chose Liverpool to win the league. But I think uh, that result showed that the league is a lot more wide open than it was before. Yeah, definitely. Um, Liverpool only gave up 33 goals last season, uh, but this season have already uh, given up almost a third of that number. Uh, Does that come down to uh, a need for a change in tactics, or is Liverpool just unlucky in that sense? You mentioned the the goals that were deflected in also. Well, I I I don't think they need to change tactics, but I will say this. Uh, it's obvious that their defense is not nearly as good as it was last year. And, and we see this with a lot of teams. You know, Manchester City two years ago, you know, they were, they were centurions and they, they had, you know, 100 points and they won the league by one point against Liverpool, but their defense was really solid. 
And now we see them, though they just spent eighty some million dollars on on Ruben Diaz, and you know, and they they seem to have a good defense. The defenses go through cycles, and I think Liverpool is seeing that right now. Yeah, Andy, you had something to mention on that. Oh, I was going to say though, you know, I I think with their form, you know, the way it is. I mean, I, I think Liverpool, like I said, they're going to figure this out. I think this was just a bump in the road. Like, you know, you mentioned earlier that they had all these losses with Corona uh, going on through the that team. There were a couple guys out with injuries as well. Uh, I think that really does affect them as a whole. So I, I think looking at this, this was just kind of an oddball uh, game, but still give Aston Villa credit because they did come to play and they they threw Liverpool off. But I think you have to look at it and, and say that, sure, yes, Liverpool played very poor. But if you have guys like Allison out there, Thiago playing, I think they're going to change the game. And even Jordan Henderson as well. I mean, Chris, you talk about Jordan Henderson since you're a Liverpool supporter and you know how important he is to the team. So I think those guys can change the game for Liverpool uh, but still, you know, give Aston Villa some credit as well. Yeah, I really want to just point out to the fact that Dean uh, Dean Smith had an excellent setup there. They were basically causing chaos with the back line because they had runners that were late each time and were causing so many problems tracking. The back line would get stretched, and you were able to find a ball that would fall to the feet of, or they would find the feet of Grealish or Barkley, who was able to play that ball down the line or over the top just to get them into that space that was clearly left in behind by Liverpool, you know, naturally playing so high up the field, being a team that presses from the front. Yeah, and Villa were absolutely outstanding in this match. Uh, Ollie Watkins making his Premier League debut and getting a hat trick. Uh, Jack Grealish was absolutely outstanding, scoring a brace, but also uh, being the driving force in most of those attacks. Uh, But Villa, of course, were struggling uh, last season, they were almost in the relegation zone up until the final day. So, how have Villa developed so quickly after last season? They've directly addressed a couple of issues. Uh, first of all, they bought Matty Cash, which has gone kind of under the radar because of uh, the likes of Ollie Watkins and Emmy Martinez making their their ways into the squad, as well as Ross Barkley. But those four additions right there address problems that they had had all season. They needed a fullback that could really get after it and get up front and whip balls into the box and really just bring them something extra. And Matty Cash from Nottingham Forest has been excellent. Uh, Ross Barkley, I mean, what a great deal. They needed just some reinforcements with midfield. And, I mean, he's a class player. He's not He's not super special. He couldn't find his feet at Chelsea and wasn't, you know, a superstar at Everton. But he's a good enough player to find his way in this league. And you've already got the likes of Jack Grealish there, who is now able to build a relationship with an excellent nine and Ollie Watkins from Brentford. And... I think the partnership that he's going to be able to try and form and work on there with Watkins is going to be special. And then, I mean, you really can't shy away from Emmy Martinez. He's an excellent goalkeeper. And Arsenal, you know, it was really tough to see him leave them. I mean, I li- I'm sure they loved what they had going there with Leno and him maybe battling it out or being the, a really strong one-two. But now Everton, or um, excuse me, Aston Villa have an excellent starting goalkeeper who is capable of saving shots as well as playing with his feet. Yeah, he really came into it during that FA Cup final uh, and is performing well ever since. Uh, you did mention Jack Grealish, and of course we are upon an international break. Do you think, given this performance, Jack Grealish gives uh, Gareth Southgate more to think about when he starts riding that Everton t- or that uh, England team? 
You know, you would hope so after a promising performance like this. But uh, one thing that I think I've noticed about Southgate is he is very much about structure. He probably leans a bit more towards the conservative side. And I don't think a player like Jack Grealish fits what Southgate wants to do. And he will probably be yet another dynamic sub in a big game. Or possibly he'll start in the game that's not against Belgium. I just don't see Southgate really trusting Grealish in a big match where he would like uh, discipline and lots of work rate, even though we, we have seen Grealish put in performances where he, he can show that he can do those things for Aston Villa. Yeah, and also uh, this might not be what Liverpool want going into the international break because their game coming right out of it. First game back of the Premier League is going to be the Merseyside Derby. Uh, do you think over, uh, David, do you think over the international break, this result is going to uh, kind of fester in the minds of the players and maybe give them a disadvantage when they come back? Or do you think they'll be able to get over it and uh, keep on going? Uh, what I will say is, I mean, let's look at two different, totally different performance between Liverpool um, and then Tottenham and Manchester United and Everton. You know, Everton won their game. Tottenham won their game. Going into the international break, they're feeling really good. Liverpool and Manchester United, I mean, they're different situations. I think we will see what – we will see who's going to win the league, if, whether it's Liverpool or someone else, in that game against in the Merseyside Derby. Uh, if, they, if Liverpool come out and beat Everton, um, I, I really think like Liverpool just kind of, kind of hop back on the horse. But – on the other hand, if Everton were to win that game, or in my opinion, honestly, even tie that game, I think we might see some some different attitude towards Liverpool this year. I'm not saying it's going to be a hangover for them. Um, I think they will win, but we'll see. Yes, this season looks like it's going to be a much more enjoyable one for maybe those neutral fans or um, fans who don't want to see a, a two- or even one-horse race uh, by November. But moving on to the other shocking result of the weekend, Tottenham traveled to Old Trafford, Trafford and thrashed Manchester United, beating them 6-1 to one after an Anthony Martial red card. Um, Harrison, I want to start with you, but United afforded Tottenham acres of space, specifically to Serge Aurier on the right wing. Um, were United's tactics wrong, or is Jose Mourinho a genius? Uh, you got to give credit to Tottenham's setup because we saw a very similar setup against Southampton two match days ago now, maybe. Um, it was excellent. It was perfect from Jose. And you could say that there was a bit of naiveness from United, still pressing high, playing out of the back, a man down when you know that is very dangerous. And you know what? Even before they were a man down, you're right. They had that space behind Shaw, behind Juan Bissaka. Um, and that's something I've seen consistently with United recently is the spaces that these players are left with in wide areas. And I believe it's simply down to not having mobile in the two pivot midfield positions. Pogba, while being uh, more mobile than Matic, he's not going to cover a lot of space in the open area for you. Matic, he is going to cover space in the open area for you, but you don't want him in a lot of space. He's going to be beaten to the ball nine times out of ten. He's just not quick enough. He is strong enough. He's reasonable on the ball. His awareness is good, but sheer athleticism is going to beat him 90% of the times in a game that you're going to find yourself stretched in. 
And I just thought that there were a few mistakes from the likes of Maguire, who uh, allegedly had a, a bit of a dressing down moment with Bruno in the locker room, which had Bruno hooked at halftime. And it just all kind of capitulated on the field. And you could see it in their play. And you could truly see it in that absolutely abysmal tackle from Luke Shaw late in the game. Yeah, uh, Manchester United did look off from the start. Um, you, you did mention they were playing uh, uh, quite poorly and giving Tottenham that space early on. It was 2-1 to one before the red card. Uh, David, are you happy with the way that Tottenham played before the red card, or was it more so a reaction after giving away the penalty? Um, I'm ecstatic with how we played before the red card um, and how we played after the red card. Uh, I will tell you from a Tottenham perspective, today was the transfer deadline day, and though there were clubs that were upset and clubs that were, you know, signed guys today, Tottenham fans are full Mourinho now. Um, something that I think he struggled with when he first came to the club due to the potch. Everyone loved potch, including myself. Um, and I think after this transfer window, watching us play on Saturday or on Sunday with the team that he put out, which involved players that Tottenham fans were critical of, including myself as in Serge Aurier, um, I have to say something, and I'll bring Matt Daugherty into the team and having competition for Serge Aurier has made Aurier a much better player. He had an outstanding game, and I know for you know 72 minutes of the game, um, or 68 minutes of the game, or two minutes, however, uh, I know they were had 10 men, Manchester United, but Aurier was outstanding. Regularly on was outstanding. Um, and, you know, it was really nice to see Mourinho's tactics work. Uh, you know, and, you know, I know we know six, I know we won 6 1, but, you know, we were missing three major components to the team on Sunday. Um, you know, and Giovanni Lochelso, uh, Stephen Bergvine, and probably the biggest one is Gareth Bale, who hasn't even played for us yet. So I was, I was thrilled with the team. Now, David, I've got to ask you. Because as somebody who's had Mourinho before, are you bought in fully now? Has this man sold you? Uh, I mean, I think I think him and Daniel Levy have a really good relationship. I don't think him and Ed Woodward did. I think Mourinho came into this team, into this job, knowing that this is his last major job. He even talked about it when he first came to the club, that he wants to go manage in Portugal after this and kind of finish his career there, which... Um, I totally understand that's where he kind of started. Um, and I think Mourinho has a totally different outlook. You know, we're not Manchester United. We're not Chelsea. We can't go spend millions on, of dollars. And in a transfer window where we spent a net $47 million, um, which is not a lot of money, we got some quality players. And I think that's up to Mourinho. And I also think he's totally re-energized re the squad. We had a report today from one of my favorite journalists, Alistair Gold, and he's a Tottenham journalist, and he said, like, not only did we win on Sunday, but the locker room, the, the club itself is buzzing. Like, it's, the, it's buzzing as much as it ever has been before, even, even with Poch. And, and he said, like, that's Mourinho. He brought that to the club, and it's his show, but he's trying to do the things that he said he was going to do. So I'm very happy about it. Well, you know, it was a really great performance. It was a really great setup, but I just want to uh, 
hope you hope hope you throw a little caution out there sometimes because I've been sold dreams from Mourinho and they were lies and uh, it was in the shape of a Europa League trophy. So uh, I've and, seen and, things and turn pretty quickly. Is- I I understand you feel like his mentality changed, but we're talking about uh, an older man here, and uh, history shows. Older men are, are very hesitant to change their ways. I, I think Mourinho at Tottenham, I'm going to be honest with you, a success for Mourinho at Tottenham is one trophy, no matter what it is. And I think the difference between Manchester United and, and Spurs is, you're right, you had one Europa League trophy. One Europa League trophy is huge for Tottenham. One Carabao Cup trophy is huge for Tottenham, unlike Manchester United. And I know that kind of points to a small club mentality. We haven't won a trophy in 12 years. We had the best manager we've had in 40 years in Pochettino, and we didn't win a trophy. The club needs a trophy, and I think Mourinho will bring it. David, are Tottenham supporters happy with one trophy, like you said? Like, is that the outlook that that Tottenham wants? I mean, I think Mourinho's idea of, you know, when he went to Inter Milan, uh, when he started at Chelsea, they won the League Cup, not like the, like the FA Cup. That was first. The Carabao Cup, that was first to Chelsea. That was the first trophy they won as a team. He said, I want this. I'm going to show you to be winners, and then we're going to go win more. And, you know, he's brought in winners. He brought in Gareth Bale. He brought in Sergio Reguilon. He brought in Joe Hart. He, and these are all, like, certified winners. And... Uh, you know, I, I'm on my high horse right now. I feel really good. I still doubt Mourinho sometimes. I think he makes bad moves. But he's done everything right so far. Do I agree with him sitting Deli Alley out? No. But he did it with Ndombele, and it's working. So let's see what happens with Alley. David, I'm glad that you mentioned uh, Gareth Bale because while I was watching the game this weekend, I noticed that uh, Eric Lamella and Lucas, when he came on, were having – uh, quite good games. Uh, uh, granted, they they were playing against ten men, but they did look quite good. Uh, Lamella opening up space in the midfield uh, or in the final third, allowing Harry Kane and uh, Son to go in. But um, how much play time realistically do they get if Gareth Bale is going to be starting for Tottenham? They'll get a lot of play time in the in the cups and in Europa League. I think Gareth Bale will be strictly Premier League, um, unless we're like in a big like. I mean, we're coming. We're in the quarterfinals of the Carabao Cup. I mean, he won't play against Stoke, but like when we when we go to the next round, the semis, I think he will. Um, and also, I mean, to add on to that, I've seen a lot of uh, cycling with the team. You know, Celso starts this game, then Dumbele starts this game. You know. Um, now Kane has started mostly every game, but that's because we didn't have another striker. Uh, now we do. Uh, I, 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 I do think, I mean, in all honesty though, like Eric Lamella had a good game, but I don't really want him starting Lucas Mora. I mean, I, 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 I'm a huge Lucas Mora fan, but Bale's better than Mora, but I don't think it'll really cause a problem because I mean, they all want the same thing. And that's a trophy. I mean, Eric Lamella has been at the club now since Gareth Bale left. He's the final surviving member of the seven that they brought in after Gareth Bale. And he loves the club so much. He doesn't play that much. He never has. And he's like Origi. You know, he wants to win a trophy. And that's, and I, I, I think everything will be fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, David, you did mention uh, 
the amount of signings that Tottenham have made uh, this season. But Harrison, I have a question uh, for you uh, about this. Um, Manchester United, of course, have signed a few players over the past uh, 24 hours, including, uh, but not limited to, Donny van de Beek, who was signed earlier in the window. But Edison Cavani, Diallo, uh, and Tellez have all been signed recently. Do you think that's going to help in these sorts of situations, and do you think they're going to be able to quickly uh, mesh with the team? So to address the the four new signings uh, from today, uh, first, uh, I think we'll see very quickly, uh, thanks to Anthony Martial, just where Cavani fits, how he fits, and what he's going to be able to contribute for this team. So thank you, Eric Lamella, for that. But uh, Alex Tellez, I think that he will allow us to bring a different dynamic to the play. I think that you will see Ole, especially in matches against bigger teams, teams that we not necessarily are afraid of, but will be willing to sacrifice time with the ball to hit on the break. And I think you'll see a back three utilized more often with Alex Tellez being around. And I think you may see Luke Shaw slot in at that left center back. And the other two signings, the two kids, uh, Facundo Pelistri from Penerol in Uruguay. I see uh, a diamond in the rough. I see a kid that has a lot going for him. Uh, it all kind of falls apart when he gets into the box, but we've seen plenty of talents that can bring that kind of part of their game around. Uh, various talents around the world have been bought simply just off what they can do in the build-up to the box, and then you kind of work on refining that thing when they get there. Um, Alan St. Maximin, for example, who was excellent this weekend, and guys like Vinicius Jr. So that's what they've bought in Uruguay and Facundo. Uh, and in Traore from, or Amadou Diallo from, or Ahmad Diallo from uh, Atalanta's Academy, who he only has, uh, I believe, just under half an hour of professional minutes, but uh, very highly rated, scouted for several years. Uh, Fabrizio Romano himself praises him as uh, an excellent talent in Italy, and he was 20 with 20 more million in add-ons, and I believe that when he arrives in January, he should be tossed directly into first-team training. Yes, and United have definitely made uh, a point of signing players in order to fix their problems, but one of the differences that's been highlighted over um, the this past 24 hours after the games uh, is that it is believed that whereas the Liverpool defeat is more of a bump in the road, given uh, their performance over the last couple seasons and their performance so far in the season, that given United's uh, tough game against Brighton last week and the Palace game, which they lost, that this has been uh, a downhill this season so far. The signings can make a difference in that, but do you think that the manager is to blame for some of this? Because United have good players. United have Paul Pogba, who has been great over the past few seasons, but just hasn't been performing to the ability that he's been uh, performing in the past this season is is there any blame to be put on the manager or any coaching uh yeah i think some manager can follow the or some excuse me some blame can follow the manager's feet of course it naturally does um but i don't think it's truly down to just ole i i think that would be uh very harsh to jump on his back and immediately say things are his fault i i, w- I will see the side of Twitter, the side of the fan base that believes that we are we're a team that sets out with very little of a clear, direct plan. I've seen journalists make that claim. I've seen regular, casual fans make that claim. I've seen it with my own eyes myself. I think Ole gives them a structure to work within. I do not believe he is uh, a thorough drive-the-ideas-into-your-brain kind of manager. I don't know if that is the right call. I'm not qualified enough to make that decision uh, or to make that judgment. 
I just think that it's been a lack of focus. I think it's a real gut check time for all these players. And I think the lack of preseason is still something you can point to. I still actually believe that's a problem for some of these teams that just aren't at it. And some of these guys really needed those few weeks of the, not only the friendlies, but the intense training. Everyone always talks about in those build-up in the summer days, you are really working to get match fit, and you're doing a lot of your conditioning during that time. So I just think there's uh, pieces they've missed in the build-up. Uh, I think some of it was Solskjaer's kind of just neglecting to really put his foot on the brake in that game against Tottenham this weekend. I mean, allegedly he had hooked Bruno at halftime for having a spat with Maguire in the dressing room, but uh, I believe that should have been the move regardless. I think Pogba and Matic should have come off no matter what. And to have those legs in there and close up shop, but not really close up shop and still press high, it was, it was very naive. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought up the tactics because something that I saw last season a lot is that it seemed like every week he was putting out the best 11 players that he thought would fit the match well, uh, not working within the system, just the best 11 that he had seen in training that week. Um, do you think with the new signings he's going to change that at all to try and adapt them into a system or just see whoever's the best on the training pitch gets to play that week? I think system changes, like I said, will come in the shape of a back five. And you'll see that utilized again. Last season it was utilized not incredibly successfully because at wing back, when you're playing the likes of a right-footed Brandon Williams at left wing back or Luke Shaw, it's just not as dynamic. Uh, we know what we have going forward in Juan Basaka. It's uh, something they're working on. So him at wing back is, is a bit of an issue as well. But when you add the likes of Alex Tellez, you, you change the dynamic on that side. You give a player that can link up with probably our most dynamic player at this moment, Marcus Rashford. And uh, I think you just you can you can bring something else there. And you obviously bring a new style of play in with Cavani coming in as well. I have, I have a quick question for you guys. I know you're going to edit this out anyway, but does the Carabao Cup count as a trophy? Uh, for y'all, yeah. yeah. For y'all, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if the Audi Cup counts as a trophy for Tottenham, then... It doesn't count for Liverpool, Manchester City, and Manchester United. Whoa, whoa, we're we're three straight winners now. I think it does count for us. Andy, you I, realize I, if you say that you care about the Carabao Cup, then that is only defaming yeah, City. Come on, come on. Oh, oh, it is. It definitely is. I'm just, I'm just asking because I got a Chelsea fan trying to tell me that it doesn't count. If we made a bet that Spurs were going to win a trophy this year, that the Carabao Well, that's because Cup. they want to forget that Keppa embarrassed their manager in front of, like, <laughs> half of England. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. you know what? You know what? Chris, you should leave this in. Because I, I, maybe I'll tell the Chelsea fan to listen to this. I'll, I'll, I'll find a way to edit it in, definitely. <laughs> I, I will. I right, will. Yeah. I'll talk to you later. Have a good one. Okay. See you, David. All right. Well, moving on. In the most tactically stressful match of the weekend, Manchester City traveled to the Ellen Road, where they were held to a 1-1 draw by Leeds. Goals coming from Raheem Sterling and Rodrigo. Um, Andy, Leeds had 47% of possession against a Pep Guardiola team. Um, does Bielsa know more about Manchester City than Pep Guardiola does? I think Bielsa does have a great plan. Obviously, he's played Pep before in La Liga, and he knows what Pep's tendencies are. He knows how to play uh, his team. But I think City here, again, just 
it's the same thing like the Leicester City game. Just not able to hold a lead. They got off to a great start. Raheem Sterling got a great goal to uh, to start the first half, and I, you know you're thinking maybe City's turned it around. The defense was looking good. Uh, I really liked Ruben Diaz. I liked how he came into the to this side and got his first start and looked pretty good. But here's the thing, though, is that City weren't attacking and they weren't creating chances in the second half. And then ultimately, Bielsa's pressure, the way uh, Leeds came forward and made chances, and then Ederson made that one mistake on that corner, and it led to a goal, and then City wasn't able to get a second. And I just think it shows that City are not uh, capitalizing on Leeds. I mean, you saw them take the 1-0 lead against Leicester, and then Leicester would go on to blow City out uh, in that game last week. And now City's kind of doing the same thing again, uh, where they're making mistakes and it's it's creating chances for goals for other teams. So, yeah, I think Bielsa did come in with a good plan, but City thwarted it, I thought, for a little while. And then the second half, they created more pressure and it ultimately led to that goal. Uh, is it fair to say that City are still reeling from the 5-2 defeat against Leicester in this game? I don't think so. I mean, sure, it hurt, but I think with the uh, with the DS signing, I think that's going to help the defense. I think it's just, I think they're just working things out, and obviously the strikers not being there, Aguero and Jesus really do hurt because those are two guys who are always creating goals and always helping the team. And I know De Bruyne and Sterling and Bernardo Silva and Mares just can't do it by themselves without them. So it was good today to uh, see Sergio Aguero posted on his Instagram that he's back in training. Uh, and also Gabriel Jesus is um, heading back into training. And he, and Raheem Sterling has also dropped the England squad for the international break. So that's going to be good for them to kind of be working over the break to get back in form and hopefully they'll start scoring goals. Yeah, Sterling being forced to play in that striker position has not been working out too well for Manchester City. Um City have, of course, signed uh, Ferran Torres, Nathan Ake, and Ruben Diaz this window. But would you have liked to see uh, City sign more of a seasoned uh, striker, especially considering that Gabriel Jesus is going to be leaving at the end of the season? I don't think it's time yet for City to do that. If the winter transfer window uh, gets here and City's you know, still having trouble with Aguero being fit, then, yeah, I could see them maybe going out and buying someone. But... I don't think City should panic yet. I know with Aguero coming back, uh, it's going to help. Jesus, I know a lot of people do hate on him. And I, I'm critical of him as well sometimes, but he does have some quality, and he's young. He's still learning. He's getting better, and I think he's not the replacement for Sergio Aguero by any means, but he, he'll do for um, the things that uh, Pep asked him to do. But I think eventually, you know, City's going to have to go buy someone, whether it's in January or it's in the summer after Sergio Aguero presumably leaves. Yeah, I think City are still showing that they're needing that like-for-like replacement for Leroy Sané. I think that they're missing a dynamic winger, missing someone that can just be direct, that can really just bring you something from something from nothing that can really just go directly at you. And I think that was what was really bright about them early on in that game against Leeds. I think playing Sterling at that false nine position, it's, it is working with what you have to at the time. 
but it's not where you want it because where you want it is for Sterling to be able to face somebody up because he's always going to have the first step on whoever is in front of him. And he's able to cut inside these days and actually finish as we saw with that first goal. That was clinical. It was a good, crisp shot. And they haven't gotten that like-for-like replacement. Some of the most dangerous times that we've ever seen from Manchester City have come from when Sané and Sterling were bombing down the wings. And yeah, you absolutely love what Riyad Mahrez can give to this team. And who wouldn't want a player like Bernardo Silva on their team as well? But when you change the dynamic, the way that they were able to with a substitute of Leroy Sané or starting Leroy Sané, it is just, it's just it's hard to kind of summarize it. And it's a huge miss that they they really haven't replaced. And that's not to discredit Ferran Torres in any way. He is a very good signing, but he just offers something a bit different. I agree with you, Harrison. I think when Sané left, that was one of the uh, the players that I really liked. I, I I agree, his pace, his power, his speed is so great, and I think he's going to do amazing things at Bayern when he plays. And yeah, no, Sané was a huge loss for City, and just yeah, I mean, Harrison, you nailed it on the head. I mean, the way he was able to run at players like. He just made them think extra when you when you had to defend him. But I think City just doesn't have that anymore. I mean, no, like Bernardo Silva is a great player. So is Riyad Mahrez. But man, when Sané was on the field, he was just added something extra for City. Just to touch on the the lead setup slightly, a, a trend I'm noticing is when the likes of Calvin Phillips has time to pick his passes, they're excellent. They're absolutely excellent, and I think his success, his play, is going to be as crucial to their success as Bamford, as you know, Rodrigo picking up from what he started this weekend, grabbing his first goal in the league. I think Calvin Phillips is excellent. I love what he brings. I love what he can do. And if he is afforded time and space, he's going to hurt you. And I, I'm looking forward to seeing where he may end up if uh, he decides to move on from his lovely club of Leeds. Yeah, I think there's no debate on which which team had the better attack. Uh, Manchester City may have had twice as many shots with 23 shots, but only two of them were on target, meaning that they had uh, they were they were forced out, they were forced wide, they were forced back most of their shots. I don't think they had a single one from inside the six yard box. Um, most of their shots were just forced because they had no one to pass to in the final third, and that's part of uh, the front three not being able to connect at all with Kevin De Bruyne. There were multiple times when the camera was on De Bruyne's face, and he just looked angry and confused because he couldn't figure out where to pass the ball. There was just no connection there, and much credit to Leeds. They had a 2.57 XG, and... Uh, had seven shots on target and were creating the much better chances, especially in the second half. And I think part of that, Harrison, I would like you to talk on this, um, is their incredible work rate, which makes up for uh, maybe their their lesser talent compared to top sides. Yeah, I mean, this is just a staple to Bielsa. It's how physically fit he wants to make you, and it is just it's so demanding. He is extraordinarily demanding of his players, and it it does take a certain kind of mentality to be managed by a guy like that. And it really benefits him that he he may not have a superstar out there, a guy with a mentality bigger than everybody else's or something like that. This is a group of guys that believes in their manager. They love their manager. They're going to do whatever it takes to win for their manager. 
And it it is so great to have that at a club like Leeds where you just you love the feel of that club. You love what the vibe would be. If you had a full Elland Road playing and and Leeds were playing at the highest possible level they were playing in the Premier League, doing what they've been doing, it would be absolutely ecstatic. That place would be absolutely bouncing. From what I've seen from old clips, it's a fantastic place to play at when it's in the league, and I saw them play in the championship. They're an excellent ground, and they will add that just that extra bit when they get fans back in the stadium and they're playing the way they play. Yeah, and... Moving on to Brighton versus Everton. Everton made it four wins out of four, meeting Brighton, beating Brighton four to two at Goodison Park with two of their goals coming from James Rodriguez. Um, Andy, Everton are still in the Carabao Cup and currently first in the league after four matches. Uh, do you think they have a reasonable chance at winning silverware this season? Well, let me tell you, uh, Ancelotti has really made this team. Uh, like 100% better than they were the last couple seasons. And I think this really has to do with the progression of Dominic Calvert-Lewin and then also the adding of uh, of James Rodriguez. Because Calvert-Lewin, he was a guy that just wasn't getting it done uh, in the last couple seasons, but it seems like he's just totally turned it around and he's scoring goals and honestly is in contention to win the golden boot right now. And I think he... If he keeps playing like this, he can really boost Everton. And so, uh, as well as Hamez, just getting balls to Richarlison and to Dominic Calvert-Lewin, I think they've got a great connection in the midfield. I know I talked about this uh, in the last podcast. And I just think that Everton has a chance. This Merseyside derby is going to be massive for them. If they can take three points against Liverpool, that's a huge statement for the rest of the season as long as they keep it together and against the other top six or traditional top six sides uh, in the league. And I think Everton has a chance if they do make a statement against Liverpool. Yeah, I really liked what I've seen from them recently. I love what they've got going on. I think this was an excellent window, and they backed Ancelotti as as much as they should have. And uh, I've always liked Carlo Ancelotti uh, as a manager. And, I mean, Everton just have that extra bit about them. You know, when I've looked at Everton the last few seasons, I see a team that plays entirely off of the energy of their home crowd a bit too much. And you can't blame them for that. I mean, Goodison is an absolutely insane place to play when it's full and packed. And they just relied so much off that spirit and that energy. And performances under guys like Marco Silva were just so incredibly inconsistent. And now they've got a manager who is a cool head, one that everyone can kind of believe, no, they can fully believe in, and they backed him completely. And they won this match without Allen, which is a great sign. They won their match without one of their crucial midfield signings this past week. And again, I've touched on Hamas the last two weeks, but i got to do it again because he just can't stop being involved with goal-scoring situations. The The first goal he scored is simply him being intelligent. He found himself in acres of space in that box just completely alone and the ball playing ability we all know the ball playing ability and he's just so intelligent with his movement and he just will find opportunities that most of these Everton players will not find and he's got guys that are going to take their chances Richarlison he's got to get better at taking his chances because right now James is ready to serve up two to three on a plate for him he's just got to take them and Calvert-Lewin has stepped in 
to the boots of the number nine spot for Everton and really taken a grasp to it, and I, I really like that. And uh, last little note from Everton, I am just waiting for when Gareth Southgate finally pulls the plug on playing Jordan Pickford because Dean Henderson is ready for that spot. I'm glad that you brought that up because uh, as much as it can't be an understatement how much James Rodriguez and Allen have impacted this team and changed their team, it does seem like Jordan Pickford might be their Achilles heel. Um, do you think he might cost some games this season? Yeah, I mean, between him and the the partnership at the back, I don't necessarily believe in too much Keen and Mina. Um, I don't, I don't fully trust them, but I, I don't trust Pickford either. And that little triangle of those three being your main staple in defense is worrisome. But it's not always a problem. It's not necessarily a huge problem for a team that's really just trying to to set some stone down that they're going to finish high in the table. They've been inconsistent with their finishes and seasons, and truly with this squad, they should not be finishing anything lower than seventh. I mean, this is this is a Wolves-Lester caliber step. They've made strong movements. They have planned this out. They've got an excellent manager, and this should be consistency. This is all they should be looking for is consistency of results, and it is, it is probably... No, I know for a fact it hurts when you're when your goalkeeper is somebody that you do not trust it is clear and obvious and we've seen it from the likes of Chelsea over the last season yeah and now their opponents uh Brighton have uh played four games so far have lost three of them they lost against United they lost against Chelsea and now they've lost against Everton they've only beat Newcastle this season but they've put up good games uh, games against each of those teams uh, are they a bit unlucky not to come away with maybe this game with a point or any of those games with a point? Yeah, you've absolutely hit the nail on the head with the word unlucky. I mean, I really can't think of any other way to describe it. I love what they do. I, I love Graham Potter. I, I really admire that he is so upfront and willing to play full-force football, just out from the back, press from the front, and with a group of guys that is, is really solid. But, yeah, they've been unlucky. I mean, that Manchester United match is, is the definition of unlucky. And I believe they'll get the results. I don't believe it's a time to panic for them. I think it's just been an an excruciating run of results in terms of being great in performance, just unlucky with the final result. They'll they'll get back on their feet, though. I'm sure there's matches out there waiting for them to take a hold of. Yes, and moving on to Arsenal, who, of course, have done many other things than uh, cutting Gunnersaurus this week. Uh, they managed to nab a 2-1 win over relegation-bound Sheffield United with back-to-back goals coming from Saka and Pepe. Uh, Andy, Arsenal had a close first half against the Blades. Uh, what did Sheffield do to keep the game tight in the first half? Well, I mean, they were really good defensively. I mean, Arsenal's got a great attack, and I think Aubameyang and uh, Lacazette and Pepe were just not really able to get a lot uh, going in that uh, first half. And Sheffield, you know, they, they're a good team. I know, you know, they've really dropped off from their great run they had last season. But I think that what they were able to do is um, they were, you know, they just got like what a lot of teams really do is they sit back on these uh, fast-attacking teams and they make you work for it. You put guys in the box to defend and it makes it harder for teams like you know Arsenal and like Man City, Liverpool, uh, to you know get goals. And when you're putting a lot of guys in the box, but Arsenal, you know, they have a lot of quality. And I think you know they, of 
really uh, the big difference uh, was Hector Bellerin as he got uh, an ass- I believe it was two assists, right? Yeah, I think he had two assists in the game. I know he had one. I know at least that one. Pepe, I, I don't know if he was credited with the second one due to Pepe running from so far, but he may have been. Yeah, I know he at least he had one or two assists in the game, and he was able to get balls in. Uh, for the goals, so I, I think you know Arsenal was lucky to get through, but Sheffield definitely gave them a tough test. Yeah, I really liked Arteta's plan to try and bring Saka into a lineup. I I really like that because typically if he's not in the front three, you're you're kind of wondering when well, you know when is he going to get into the game as a substitute. But this time they did the back three and they played him at wing back, and I just think that he's one of those players that you just desperately want to have on the field. It's a bit like. It's a bit like Greenwood playing right wing for Manchester United. It's it's not that he is the perfect fit. And, you know, maybe Saka isn't the perfect fit at wing back, and maybe he is waiting to become that, that left winger. But you've got to have him on the field. He's good enough, and, and he's got to be on the field because he's good enough. And he just brings you that extra bit because he is special. He's very talented. He found himself in a, a pretty reasonable amount of space for that free header at the back post. And he's just someone that can carve you a chance out of not a whole lot, and I, I really like that he was um, targeted to uh, to start. I didn't really like what I saw from Enketia. Honestly, I, I still I'm not I don't want to give up on him. I believe he's a, a good talent, but uh, I think the game changed when they brought on Pepe. Uh, they were able to really get it going in that second half, kind of up the tempo. They they really weren't able to carve anything clear cut in that first half, but they were really able to change the dynamic of the game when they brought in Pepe. Yeah, and now on to another team from London. West Ham United won a decisive game against Leicester City, beating them 3-0. David Moyes, a better manager from home, or is there something else that's contributing to Hammers' comeback, would you say? Uh, Honestly, you know, I think... uh, the biggest thing is for West Ham is that, I mean, that was just a huge win. I mean, you know, they're lacking in confidence. Uh, you know, they've taken some losses. But now that they got this huge win against Leicester, a team who's right now up in the top four uh, in the Premier League, I think that's a huge boost for them. I'm, I'm not saying that their form's going to get any better or worse. But, you know, I, I think, you know, just to have that confidence of getting a big win against a good side – who just came off of beating City 5-2, I think that's got to boost their chances and boost their hopes to get another uh, win next week. Yeah, and West Ham kept Leicester to four shots and zero on target, um, doing a really good job of uh, keeping Vardy away from getting those dangerous passes. Um, How does Leicester improve against teams who like to sit back uh, and give them the majority of possession? Well, first of all, it starts with their back line not being as stretched as they were. And when I say stretched, I mean I saw two games where over five goals were scored, and I don't believe there were as many times that the back line was so stretched in those two games as there was in the Leicester game. I looked at a team that I saw not communicating. Um, I, I saw a danger that I saw in the Liverpool game where the, the late runners were just causing so many problems for that high line. I mean, Brendan Rodgers has them up the field as they as they want to do with possession and play that kind of style. But when you've got a, a, not necessarily a unicorn in Antonio being so strong and fast and can hold the ball up like that, but he's just such a, a problem, such an issue. 
And that back line was just all over the place. I mean, the first goal, it's an absolute joke that Soyuncu's not even, he's completely lost him. He's completely lost Antonio behind him and has uh, picked up the run in front of him instead of checking behind him. And uh, that's the first goal. And I just thought the pace and strength of the back line from West Ham was just enough to keep Villa or just to keep Vardy at bay. I mean, really, you're looking at a West Ham team that is working very hard for each other. They know what they want to do, and they are so well-structured that they're hitting the key points that they see of weakness in their wins. I mean, they are seeing those small little pieces and honing in on them and beating them into the ground. And finally, in the other results from this weekend, Chelsea won 4-0 against Crystal Palace. Newcastle beat Burnley 3-1, Southampton defeated West Brom 2-0, and Wolves beat Fulham 1-0. Finally, before we do our predictions for this week, uh, today, of course, was the end of the transfer window. Uh, A few teams making some last-minute signings, most notably uh, Arsenal and Manchester United. Um, There, of course, is no trophy that is given out. Uh, for winning the transfer window or for getting any specific player. But I want to get your takes on which team you thought either had the best signings of the window or signed the best player, not specifically overall, but for their team. So if I had to go overall, it would be Everton, just uh, based off quick results, three games, three wins, and things look off and running for them. And... That's excellent. It's absolutely excellent for them. They made crucial signings, and they improved in positions they needed to improve in, and overall, everything feels great. But uh, in terms of a marquee signing, the one that really makes me uh, think is uh, I really like Thomas Partey at Arsenal. I think this was one that we've heard about for months. I know that they have been debating on and off to pay this release clause, and they finally came through with it a couple hours before the window closed, and this is excellent. I mean, this is Arteta's dream. He's got a shield. He's got a very athletic, ball-playing shield for that back line. And he's going to be able to maintain possession a bit better. He's going to be able to snuff out more counterattacks. And I just think this gives stability in a part of the field that Arsenal have not been able to have stability in. I mean, you saw it in their approach to Liverpool. Arteta had completely accepted the fact that he was not going to command the ball. As much as they, they played out of the back, he, he most definitely played in midfield in El Neni and uh, I believe uh, Xhaka that was just going to work, work their socks off. And then when he felt that he wanted to bring a little more presence into the game, he would sub on Ceballos. But now he's able to possibly start the game with a different approach, a more aggressive approach, because he has someone he can truly rely on to possibly play as a single pivot and cover all of those important spaces. Uh, well, you know, uh, I'll go with Man United. Uh, I know, you know, they got some great signings. I thought Edison Cavani coming in. I mean, sure, he's not like the long-term uh, replacement for Man United, but I think... He's definitely a great addition because he's going to score goals. He's got quality, and he's looking to you know get a starting role because uh, he's been sitting on the bench at PSG and not really had a role there because they have so many good quality strikers. So I think Man United got a great addition there. 
I'll even go with Man City uh, adding defense, the defense uh, with Ruben Diaz and Nathan Ake. I think you know they're gonna get in the side and really grow there. I think Ruben Diaz had a great start despite the draw at one one. I thought he had made some great tackles against Leeds. So I think City's gonna have him be one of their better defenders this season. Um, and I'll even say uh, Tottenham. Really, I I know you know that we talked about. Uh, Gareth Bale, but also some of the other guys that they signed, um, Matt Daughtery, um, and then Holberg from uh, Southampton. I think those are great additions for them to just help boost a side that really needs help in the midfield. Uh, and then they can get it to the front three of Sun and Lucas Mora and Lamella and Harry Kane. Now, unfortunately, we are entering a international uh, window, so... There will not be any Premier League games played this weekend, but that will not stop us from predicting the Nations League fixtures. So each of us is going to be choosing two teams that we believe are going to be winning both of their games uh, over the over the next two Nations League games that they play. Uh, so Harrison, starting with you. I am going to go for Spain and Portugal to win them both. And yes, I truly believe that Portugal will beat France. All right, and Andy. Uh, ooh, I like England to win both their games and Germany. England are going up against Belgium. Are you sure about that? I think they can get it done. I know uh, Belgium's got a really good side, but I think England will have some surprises. <laughs> All right, we will see. And I will be choosing Germany and the Netherlands. Now I know these two are bitter rivals, but I do think that they will both come on top during their games. Uh, That does it for us in the studio. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Stoppage Time. We will be back next week. Until then. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Stoppage Time. You can follow us on Instagram at stoppagetime91.1 for news, updates, and more. Be sure to tune in next week for another great episode on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts.